Frank Luke, the Balloon Buster was America's second highest scoring ace of World War I. Now, there were more than 200 aces with over 20 kills during the Great War. Out of that list, there's only one American, and that's Eddie Rickenbacker with 26. Frank Luke, with 18 victories, didn't even make the top 200. But Frank Luke was a better pilot than all of them. And those that saw him fly, seasoned aces, chief among them Eddie Rickenbacker himself, agreed that Luke was the best pilot and by far the best shot that they'd ever seen. And many of them said that they had no doubt whatsoever that in a one-on-one fight with the Red Baron Manfred von Richthofen, Frank Luke would have made short work out of him. Now, he comes down to us as a mean-spirited, taciturn, heartless killing machine, a loner, a braggart, an almost pure antithesis of grinning, charming, likable Eddie Rickenbacker. It's virtually impossible to find a photo of Rickenbacker without that trademark smile, and it's even more difficult to find one of Frank Luke that doesn't look like he's about to come over there and kick your ass. The most famous picture ever taken of Luke, he's leaning against his SPAD-13 biplane. He looks like a man that got dragged by his wife to a shopping mall in the middle of watching a playoff game. His eyes are serious, cruel even. He looks exactly like a human bird of prey, which, of course, is what he was. There are no pictures of a smiling balloon buster because by the time he was famous back home in the States, Frank Luke was already dead. But if you walk his life back for a little bit, just a few months, really, you see a completely different face, fuller, happier, kinder. Step back another two or three years, a Mona Lisa smile on the face of the captain of the Phoenix Union High School football team from the brand new state of Arizona. Frank Luke, fullback, was a short yardage man. He did to linebackers what linebackers normally do to fullbacks. He hit them so hard that they would flinch at the idea of ever hitting him again. Even as a junior, a sports writer for the Phoenix newspaper called Luke the hardest line hitting runner in the state. Now, every year at Halloween, there was a competition among the students at Phoenix Union High School. Seniors, juniors, and sophomores would enter a three-way brawl. Essentially, each class had its own pennant, and each team had to make their way to the school's flagpole and hoist the pennant in order to win. Now, the junior fullback did more than his fair share, but to Luke's disgust, the seniors carried the day. Now, later that evening, residents living near the school heard gunfire and called the police. When they arrived, they found a number of shell casings on the ground and bullet holes in the pole, the pennant, and the brass ornament up on top. There was no one in sight, so they went home. About an hour or two passed before the police were called again. When they arrived for a second time, shotgun casings littered the ground, and the senior class pennant had been shot clean away. After high school, Frank moved to Ajo, Arizona, about 100 miles southwest of Phoenix, and took a job in the local copper mines. Now, a troublemaker and semi-professional bare-knuckle fighter by the name of Irishman Breen deliberately tripped Luke and sent him flying. Luke sprang to his feet, got inside Breen's jab, and then unleashed a furious onslaught of short, rapid, and powerful punches directly in his face. The foreman came down to break up the fight, and he asked Luke what the hell was going on down there. He asked for it, replied Luke, and I gave it to him. Breen demanded a rematch, and he got one. A six-round fight packed to the gills with miners and other locals. Bell rang for the first round. Frank darted across the ring. He blocked Breen's left hook and delivered a single right uppercut to the jaw. Breen went down and was counted out a few seconds later. Frank Luke decided to become a bare-knuckle prize fighter. But there were strange nuances to this boy. 
Things that just didn't seem to make sense didn't fit the tough guy stereotype. For instance, Frank decided that there had to be an easier way to part bored and lonely miners from their money than prize fighting, but Luke didn't open a bordello. He opened a dance hall. Frank Luke offered these tough and desperate men dancing lessons in order to improve their marriage prospects. Frank would put on a dress and teach miners the basic dance steps. Now, apparently his reputation from his other two occupations, miner and prize fighter, kept whatever sniggering there may have been behind his back. States declared war on Germany on April 6, 1917. And on September 25, 1917, Luke walked into a recruiting office in Tucson, Arizona. At five feet, nine and a half inches and 155 pounds, he was in perfect physical condition, and he found himself a private first class in the aviation section of the Signal Enlisted Reserve Corps. On December 12th, Frank Luke soloed at the flight school located at what was then called Rockwell Field, just across the channel at the mouth of San Diego Bay. Now today, that same dusty strip where Frank Luke learned to fly is called North Island Naval Air Station. There's a picture of Frank in his flying outfit. He's still got some baby fat on his face and his eyes are still bright. He looks like the son of the man he would be in less than a year. On Christmas Eve, he found himself at All Saints Episcopal Church in San Diego. 16-year-old Marie Rapson was the organist that evening. By the time the service was ended, Frank was smitten. Frank Luke, in his new dress uniform, made his way to the front of the church, introduced himself to both Marie and her mother, Cora, and invited them both to go for a leisurely Christmas drive the next day. They said yes. Mother, I have met some nice little girl here, he wrote home on January 7, 1918. She sure is nice. She and her mother have taken me to all the parks, beaches, etc. There are some awfully pretty places here. I'm invited to take supper with them next Saturday evening and a long drive on Sunday. They treat me very nicely. If things continue like they have been, I will hate to leave them here. Now, on the days he was slated for solo practice, Frank would fly the two miles over to the Rapson house and he'd begin to circle. Marie would run out to the edge of her yard, and Frank would start to show off with some aerobatics. Now, Frank Luke didn't know it, but the stunts he was performing with such reckless courage were extending his life in a war that was sending boys with seven or eight total hours of flying time up on combat missions over the front. Frank Luke was learning to fly aerobatics like a seasoned ace in the skies of a Marie Rapson's house in San Diego, California. Luke received his commission on January 28, 1918. On the last day of January, Marie and her parents drove Frank to the train station. He'd asked her to marry him, of course, and she'd accepted, of course. The train lurched forward, carrying Frank Luke to France and leaving Marie Rapson in a cloud of steam, both waving to each other. She would never see him again. Luke joined about 900 other American pilots at Hoboken, New Jersey, awaiting the transports that would carry them over there. They managed to elude German U-boats and arrive safely in Liverpool on March 18th. 
By mid-April, Luke and about 40 others arrived at the 3rd Aviation Instruction Center in Isoduna, a small village about 150 miles south of Paris. Harry Aldrich, one of Luke's air combat maneuvering instructors, vividly remembered his first training flight with Frank. Aldrich was showing Luke how to fly in formation. He turned to check Luke's position behind him, but Luke was gone. And then, to his amazement, he saw a Newport 21 trainer directly in front of him. Luke was heading straight for me, recalled Aldrich. Just as I pulled up to avoid colliding, he executed a perfect reversement to get in position behind me. My plane passed under him as he dropped to straighten out. His right wing nipped my left wing ever so slightly another inch. And we would have both been flying our last flight. My ship was still wobbling from the effect of his propeller wash when he made another terrific dive at me. For the remainder of the period, I contented myself with avoiding what I considered to be a series of collisions. That in itself was battle practice. And once they were back on the ground, Luke walked over to Aldrich's aircraft. You aren't peeved at me, are you? He asked. Well, I can get over it, replied Aldrich, who went to the darkroom to see the pictures from Luke's gun camera. His films, when developed, showed that he had scored several deadly shots on vital parts of my anatomy, he recalled in amazement. Now, Frank Luke earnestly thought that these kind of displays would hasten his assignment to an active combat squadron. They had precisely the opposite effect. No one wanted him. And so for several agonizing months, Luke remained based at Isidun as a ferry pilot. He would fly new or repaired replacement aircraft out to the forward airfields where the American squadrons were based, and then he'd ride back ignominiously by car or truck or motorcycle sidecar. He would log many hours in several aircraft types, including the new SPAD-13s that were being sent out to replace the aging Newports. It defies imagination to believe that Frank flew these long, monotonous ferry flights straight and level the entire time. He was becoming more and more familiar with the aircraft that would carry him to immortality. Finally, on the morning of July 25th, Frank Luke was on a train for the 40-mile trip to Colomiere, home of the American First Pursuit Group. Frank drew the 27th Squadron, the Fighting Eagles. Eddie Rickenbacker would later go on to command the more famous 94th Aero Squadron, the Hat and the Ring Boys, based at the same field. The first pursuit group was commanded by former flight instructor Major Harold Evans Hartney, a kind-hearted, highly skilled Canadian flyer who had become an ace himself and survived the war with six kills. Hartney was one of the very few people who took the time to get to know and understand Frank Luke. And he would protect him, the military expression would be that he'd be covering Frank's ass, for the half year that he had yet to live. By this time, I was getting quite wise to the peculiar mental processes of war pilots and how to get the best out of them, Hartney would later write. The commander of Luke's squadron, the 27th, was Lieutenant Alfred Alexander Grant Jr., a spit-and-polished, by-the-book disciplinarian. The morning he took command on August 24th, Reveille sounded at 5.45 a.m. for the first time in months. The average life expectancy for an Allied pilot in World War I was three weeks. The last thing that the shattered nerves of these exhausted, overstressed, and badly traumatized men needed was a bugle blast before sunup. The men of the 27th universally hated Alfred Grant, and there was only one man more thoroughly detested by the pilots of the 27th, and that man was Frank Luke. All of the rookie pilots of the 27th got the cold shoulder from the 20 and 
21-year-old stone-eyed veterans the same way that every rookie pilot did in squadrons on both sides throughout the entire war. Virtually all of these new arrivals would be dead in a few weeks, many in a few days, and some in a few hours, smashing into the earth or burning to death on the way down before they had time to unpack. All the new replacement pilots took this the same way. They hung together and they left the veterans alone. Those that live long enough to have a name worth remembering would eventually be asked to join the old men over at the bar. Luke wasn't built this way. He knew he was a good player and he wanted to get on the team and he wanted to get on the team now. He'd waxed the tail of his flight instructor and he never stopped talking about it. The men of the 27th instantly considered him a braggart and a liar. Neither the new arrivals nor the old timers could stand to be around him. Frank Luke had been issued a brand new SPAD-13. It mounted twin Vickers guns. It was sleek but beefy, heavy on the controls, so not particularly agile, and it wasn't that great in a climb, but it was built like a tank. The SPAD-13 was immensely strong, the strongest airframe of the entire war. It couldn't outturn the deadly German Fokker D7, without question the best all-round fighter of the war, but in a power dive, the SPAD was unbeatable. You could pull back hard at the last minute, and in a significant improvement over the new ports that they replaced, the wings would still be there when you leveled off. It had terrible visibility except for a narrow slot directly ahead, which was no problem whatsoever for Frank Luke. He'd gone straight ahead his entire life. From the first day he started flying patrols, Luke would be the last one to return to the field if he returned at all. The new SPADs had temperamental engines, and leaving formation for mechanical reasons was certainly not uncommon, but Luke had used that excuse so often to break formation and go it alone that the men of his squadron no longer took him for merely a braggart and a poser. Pretty soon, they considered him a coward as well. The boy from Arizona talked big to cover the fact that he was yellow. He always had some excuse to drop out of formation before the fighting started, and every time Luke landed late, squadron CO Archie Grant took it as a personal, direct attack on his authority. None of them, except perhaps Major Hartley, who had an uncanny sense of judgment, could see what was actually happening. Luke wasn't finding excuses to break formation because he was a coward. Luke was off on his own looking for a fight. He was desperately searching for a solo kill that would put an end to all of the jeering, and on August 16th, he got one. At 8 a.m., a flight of SPADs from the 27th took off and joined elements of the 94th. The flight, commanded by Eddie Rickenbacker, would fly escort for reconnaissance planes deep behind enemy lines. Now, Luke was on the flight roster, but his aircraft was having some trouble with some last-minute repairs. By the time he got into the air over an hour later, the patrol was long gone. Now, Luke knew that they were heading deep into German territory, so that's where he went. Alone. After circling deep behind German lines with no sight of his patrol, he decided to call it a day. But on the way back, he saw a formation of six enemy fighters, the new and powerful Fokker D7s, by far the best fighter of the war, far below him and heading north. Luke turned towards them. He took his time, maneuvering so that the sun would be at his back, and then he pushed the nose of the spat over and he began his dive. He cut his engine because he didn't want the Germans to hear him coming. The German flight had been at 5,000 feet, and Luke had begun his dive at 16,000 feet. By the time he was in range, he and that bullet-shaped spad were moving like grease lightning. And then from 35 yards away, he hit the trigger on his twin Vickers. 
He blew below and past the German formation and then pulled back hard, converting the Spad's tremendous speed into altitude once again. And when he looked down, the German aircraft was inverted and falling. But Luke wasn't taking any chances. He rolled into a second dive and riddled the enemy with a second beautifully aimed burst. He flew back to base, giddy with his first kill. Surely, this would put an end to all of the accusations of being a blowhard and a coward. Only the other pilots didn't believe him. Two weeks later, confirmation still hadn't come in, and the rest of the pilots in the 27th hated him even more. They were convinced he was a coward, and lying about getting a kill only made him seem more repulsive. If he tried to start a conversation with other pilots, they would just simply walk away. Yellow, they called him. That's not something Frank Luke had ever been called in his entire life. But there were a few that believed in him. Major Hartley debriefed him at length and ended up convinced that Luke was telling the truth about the kill. And another person who didn't doubt Luke's story was a quiet, shy pilot by the name of Joseph Fritz Werner. Now, he too had been mercilessly mocked in Joe Werner's case. It was for his despised German last name. Before arriving at the 27th, he'd been forced to undergo the humiliation of a formal investigation into his background in order to disprove allegations that he was a German spy. For three miserable weeks, Luke avoided his fellow pilots, commiserating with his enlisted mechanics and discussing tactics with Werner. By the morning of September 12th, it had been nearly a month since Luke had claimed his first kill, and the confirmation hadn't come. It would never come. He'd never get official credit for his victory on August 16th. But that morning, as Frank Luke, Joe Werner, and the rest of the pilots of the 27th Pursuit Squadron walked out to their aircraft, the clock had started on perhaps the most amazing display of skill and courage in aviation history. The main killing weapon of the First World War was not the machine gun, and it most certainly was not the airplane. It was artillery, artillery by far. Now, in the days of John Paul Jones, cannons were of very limited range. You'd point the gun at the enemy, fire an iron bowling ball in their direction, and see what damage it did if it hit, and make a correction if it didn't. The military calls this direct fire. But the development of high explosives meant that huge guns could be situated miles and miles behind the front line. But now you have a problem. The people aiming the big guns can't see what they're shooting at. This is called indirect fire, and that meant observers, artillery spotters. Observers meant balloons. The reconnaissance airplanes of the time had no radios. They couldn't direct artillery fire since they had no way to communicate with the gun batteries. But a tethered observation balloon, on the other hand, could, by the use of a telephone cable, send back real-time corrections to the artillery batteries back in the rear. In World War I, the only real reason to have any airplanes at all was to blind the eyes of enemy artillery and protect the eyes of your own. In a war where a thousand men were killed every day in the long lulls between the big offensives, what possible point could there be to go to the trouble and expense of sending men up in fighter aircraft just to kill a handful of each other? Despite all of the glamour of individual combat in a war of mechanized slaughter, there's no other reason to have a fighter squadron than to shoot down enemy artillery observers and protect your own. As far as the actual outcome of the war was concerned, the great aerial duels between aces meant absolutely nothing. Now, it's a misconception, although certainly an understandable one, to think that it'd be easier to shoot down a balloon than an enemy fighter aircraft. It's not. It's much harder, and it is much, much more dangerous. Now, it is true that the balloon is not weaving back and forth, 
That means you're not weaving back and forth either. You're flying in a straight line at a huge target, and every gun in the area not only knows where you are, they know where you're going. And due to their critical importance, no other target had anything like the amount of anti-aircraft batteries that were in place to protect a balloon. And they had fighter cover up on top as well. Once enemy planes were spotted, a balloon could be winched down with astonishing speed, and while it was virtually impossible to miss a balloon if you survive long enough to get close to it, it was a damn difficult target to destroy. All you're doing is punching tiny little holes in a very big piece of fabric. There's no engine to cripple, no fuel or oil tanks to ignite, no control surfaces or wings to shred, and no pilot to kill either. In a dogfight, you might have one or maybe even two or three people shooting at you at the same time. Attacking a balloon, you might have two or three hundred people shooting at you as you flew straight and level at a target that had anti-aircraft artillery and machine guns surrounding it in ever more deadly concentric rings. Flaming them, that was their weakness. That hydrogen fireball was spectacular. It could be seen from 20 miles away or more. Those flames and the roar from the trucks filling them with hydrogen is what caused the Germans to nickname their observation balloons Drachen or Dragons. But even igniting a balloon is more difficult than it sounds. Ordinary machine gun bullets just punched through one side and punched out the other. Incendiary bullets, on the other hand, were much more effective. But the big problem with incendiaries was their short range, which meant you had to get in close. On balloon missions, the SPADs generally mounted one shorter range incendiary gun and left the other Vickers gun to fire conventional bullets. Every pilot alive hated balloon missions. They were considered suicidal. You'd have to be insane to volunteer to go after a German Drachen. It was September 12, 1918, and squadron leader Archie Grant would be leading the patrol for the first time as commanding officer of the 27th. They were airborne just before dawn, eight spads, including Luke and Joe Werner. Weather was terrible. The cloud deck was so low that it obscured the tops of the tallest trees. One by one, pilots fell out of formation, either due to mechanical problems or simply becoming lost. Now, Luke realized that this was a perfect excuse. He drifted out of formation and turned for the front lines. Luke was determined to not go back without a kill, a balloon kill, the hardest one to get. He'd left the formation again, and he would never live it down if he didn't. Now, Luke didn't know where the German observation balloons were, but he did know the position of friendly American ones. And if anyone had seen a German Drachen aloft, it would have been them. He circled low under the cloud deck and landed at an American observation balloon company just before 8 a.m. He walked over to the ground crew, asked for the telephone, and a moment later was talking to Lieutenant Maurice Smith up in the balloon. He told Luke that he'd earlier seen a German Drachen over German lines directly across from his own position and that he'd be happy to confirm it if Luke could pull it off. Okay, said Luke, who handed back the phone and walked back to his spad. Now, through their binoculars, Smith and a fellow observer, Joe Fox, watched as a solitary spad slipped in and out of the fog. Ugly black puffs of smoke began to blossom all around the incoming spad. Smith could see the American plane literally shake from the explosions. Luke just bored in, and then the gray sky was suddenly alive with tracers coming from multiple machine gun batteries, each one of them clawing for the spad as it flew through that torrent of glowing lead. Luke opened fire at point-blank range. 
He put a few incendiary rounds into the damp gray fabric before his gun jammed. Holes were beginning to appear in the fabric of both his upper and lower wings, but Luke opened fire with his remaining conventional gun. It too jammed. Luke pulled up and away from the inferno that was shredding his airplane and started hammering on the jammed incendiary gun when a burning hole from his initial incendiary pass finally made its way to the hydrogen. The Draken exploded in a spectacular ball of flame and then came crashing back down to the ground. Now back at the American balloon, Smith and Fox shook their heads and smiled. That kid said he wanted to do it, and he did it. Luke Spad had been shot to pieces, so he landed back with the American observation unit and got both Smith and Fox to confirm his kill in writing. After an early ride back in the motorcycle sidecar, Luke was on his base by 7.25 the next morning, bragging about his kill and waving his written confirmation. But Grant didn't want to hear it. He'd heard nothing from Luke since his departure the previous morning. There was a patrol briefing in 20 minutes, and now he was short both a plane and a pilot. As the morning patrol took off without him, Luke walked to the operations shack and started to make out his report. Fellow pilot Jerry Vasconels would later write, after that, there was no holding him. It wasn't any use. If he obeyed orders, it was all right. And if he didn't, well, that was all right, too. Now, Luke's late return had kept him out of the air on the 13th. But on the 14th, he told everybody he was going to go out and get another Draken. Now, this turned out not to be true. Luke got two balloons on the 14th. No one was calling him a coward now. The 27th had only gotten two or three balloons during its entire months in France. Luke was doing in a single afternoon what the entire squadron had barely been able to achieve since it arrived. By mid-afternoon the next day, Luke was over the front again. He and Joe Werner, a quiet, humble man who'd been Luke's only friend, were starting to work as a team. Joe would stay high while Frank dove for the balloons, and he would brush off whatever enemy fighters had decided to follow him down. As they approached the front, they could see two German observation balloons very close together, about a thousand yards apart from each other. Luke began his dive, plunging straight as a javelin as the air suddenly came alive with anti-aircraft fire. He could now hear the familiar popping popcorn sound of bullets coming through his wings and his fuselage. Luke opened fire with his incendiaries and the Draken immediately burst into flames, but the damn gun had jammed again. He turned towards the second balloon, hamming on his incendiary 100 feet off the deck and moving like lightning. Then, at the last possible moment, he saw them. Eight powerful, fast, brightly colored Fokker D7s had dived after him. The German aces began to pepper the Spad with their twin Spandaus, and just when it looked like his luck had run out, a second Spad came screaming down behind the German formation and started firing. It was Werner. As his bullets tore into the German formation, the veterans instinctively broke into three separate directions. Two Fokkers were still firing at Luke, Werner closed on them from behind and shot them both down. The two outcasts, the hot-headed loudmouth and the quiet, introverted man with the German names, had really started to find their rhythm. Frank and I have developed a specialty, Werner wrote home to a friend in Boston. We're sausage hunters. One of the main reasons for the striking success of the Americans in their first battle at St. Mihail was the fact that air and ground forces were being coordinated by a military genius named Billy Mitchell. The German observation balloons were popping like a string of firecrackers all up and down the line, blinding the German big guns. 
And when he heard that a single American pilot had accounted for six of them, Billy Mitchell decided that he's going to have to meet that pilot in person. On September 16th, just before sunset, Major Hartney, Frank Luke, and Lieutenant Joe Werner emerged from their briefing and found General Billy Mitchell chatting casually with the always amenable Eddie Rickenbacker. Luke walked up to the two men and he pointed to two spots on the darkening eastern horizon. Keep your eyes on those two balloons, said Luke. You'll see the first one go up in flames at exactly 7.15, and the other one will do likewise at 7.19. And he walked out to his spad. Luke and Warner took off, headed to the east, and after a few moments, they disappeared. Mitchell just shook his head. Hartney, it's impossible. To get a balloon at all is a feat. To time its demise is beyond reason, and to do it at night is just not in the cards. But they kept their eyes on the two balloons. 20 seconds to go, said Grant, and just as he glanced up, a brilliant orange fireball exploded over the trenches, sparks pouring out of the Draken as it fell to the ground. By God, there she goes, shouted Mitchell, and the other pilots broke into cheers, and four minutes later exactly, a second explosion lit up the horizon. Mitchell, Hartney, Grant, Rickenbacker, plus all of the pilots and all of the ground crews cheered themselves hoarse. They started to fire flares into the sky to guide Luke and Werner home. Luke was grinning as Mitchell walked over to shake hands with both men. Mitchell looked down at the ripped and pockmarked fabric and the splinters of wood that had covered both planes from propeller to the tail skid. If this is what German anti-aircraft batteries could do at night, what kind of living hell must it have been like to fly through that kind of fire in broad daylight? Mitchell turned to Hartney and asked if what he had just seen could be repeated along the entire German line. Yes, sir, replied Hartney. There won't be one left on the front in a few days. Now, meanwhile, back home in America, Frank Luke, the balloon buster, had become famous almost overnight. The rapid reduction of the German salient at St. Mihail had been the first all-American offensive of the war, and the country was in the mood to put a face on all of that glory. Now, this was a problem for Frank. He had not told his parents or his fiancée that he was actually at the front. He'd lied to them, saying he was still doing routine ferry flights, far from danger. If they had the slightest idea of the risks that Frank Luke Jr. was taking, they would have gone out of their minds with worry. Now, neither Luke's nor Werner's spads would be airworthy the next day, September 17th, which really didn't matter much since it started raining hard during the night. Luke and Werner spent the afternoon of the 18th talking tactics, and by late afternoon, the rain had stopped and the field was starting to firm up. They were in the air a little bit before sunset. By now, their reputation had preceded them. They knew they were going to be expected, so they decided to climb above the cloud deck, go deep behind the lines, and attack them from behind. And they did it, too. They'd achieved complete surprise. By the time the anti-aircraft crews could swing their guns around, the first Draken exploded from the incendiary fire of both American planes. Now, coming out of their dive, Joe Werner pulled up hard, heading back to his position flying top cover. Meanwhile, Luke went after the second balloon. He managed to flame that one quickly as well, and then he began a climbing turn to rejoin his friend. High above them both was a flight of eight Fokker D7s from Yasta 15. They'd been tempted to jump the Americans in the dive and try and save their Draken, but this was an assassination mission, and they managed to maintain their discipline. 
As Luke turned and climbed from the second balloon, he could see his wingman several hundred feet above him fighting for his life. Werner was engaging six veteran pilots in superior aircraft coming out of a dive that gave them a 100-mile-an-hour speed advantage over both of the Americans. Two of the D-7s had ignored Joe Werner completely and were screaming down towards Luke. So, Frank Luke did what Frank Luke always did. He turned towards the two enemy fighters and he flew right at them. The Germans blinked first. Luke had nerves of steel. The instant the German planes began to dive to avoid the collision, Luke pushed the nose over hard and put a burst into the lead German's engine. His Fokker spiraled down and out of the fight. Luke immediately turned towards the second plane. Both pilots knew that the SPAD would lose a turning fight with a Fokker D7 flown by an experienced pilot, but Luke pulled hard enough to rip the wings off of anything other than a SPAD. He put a short burst into the air where he thought the other plane was going to be, and then he rolled out of the fight and did what the SPAD did best. He dove to gain speed. But looking back over his shoulder, there was no sign of the second plane. After that brief snapshot, he simply never saw it again. But that wasn't the only plane that disappeared. There was no sign of his wingman or any of the other six German fighters. Luke then saw that a single machine gun bullet had put a hole in his fuel tank. It was a miracle that his spat had not burst into flames, so it was time to go home. As he approached the lines, he saw the black puffs of anti-aircraft fire off in the distance. A pair of German two-seaters were being pursued by a pair of French spats. As he approached, he could see that one of the lumbering recon planes had managed to dive away and disengage. Both French fighters now were stalking the other one, but the pilot, an observer manning the German plane, the guy with the rear-firing machine gun, both of those guys knew their business. Every time one of the French planes lined up for a shot, the pilot managed to evade in such a way that set up a perfect shot for his rear gunner. The French plane still had not scored. Luke began a dive to pick up speed, he got below and behind the German LG-5, below the rear gunner's firing arc, and then he pulled up sharply, breaking the bottom of the two-seater with both his standard and his incendiary guns. It rolled into a spin and spiraled down into the ground, practically disappearing into the soft mud, behind allied lines for once. Luke landed his spad in a muddy field just a few yards from the wreckage. Now. By coincidence, the German LG-5 had crashed just a few yards away from an American Army photographer, Sergeant C.E. Dunn. Dunn thought himself lucky when a German plane came down right beside him, but when Frank Luke, the balloon buster, landed and began to walk over, well, nobody has that kind of luck. He convinced Luke to pose for a picture in front of the wreckage and positioned him to hide the body of the German gunner who had not yet been removed from that wreckage. It was late in the day and he needed a long exposure. Frank Luke stands there casually, his arms behind his back. There's no sign of the German he'd just killed lying three feet behind him. His face is expressionless, and the whites of his eyes seem to have completely disappeared. Frank Luke has that thousand-yard stare. No emotion, no awareness, just utter nervous exhaustion. The reason he looks so different from pictures taken just a few months before is because Frank Luke is not really in that picture. He's up in the sky over German territory, trying to remember how and when he'd lost sight of his only friend. Dunn begged Luke for another shot. Luke was too exhausted to object. A little blurry this time, but definitely usable. There were crow's feet, old man wrinkles, 
under the eyes of this 21-year-old American boy, the pride of the great state of Arizona. In less than 10 minutes, Luke shot down five German aircraft. Frank Luke had just surpassed his friend Edward Vernon Rickenbacker's total. Luke was now the highest scoring American ace of the Great War. He's sad and he's tired. And he's wondering what happened to Joseph Werner, the friend who'd saved his life so many times in such a short, short time. He could see the Germans following him down, guns blazing. The face of the man firing will be a blur. Frank Luke would never know who was actually doing the shooting at Werner, but we do. His name was Georg von Hantelmann, but Luke would have remembered his aircraft, though. A blood-red nose and a bright blue fuselage with the enormous death head logo of Yasta 15. One of the bullets fired by Hantelmann hit Joe Werner square in the back of the head and blew away his entire lower jaw, killing him instantly. Darkness fell and the small group began to disperse. Dunn packed up his camera and walked away. The bodies of the two Germans remained on the ground. Luke's plane had a hole in the fuel tank. It wasn't going anywhere. America's ace of aces reached into the rear of the cockpit, pulled out his rolled up knapsack, placed it on the ground as a pillow, and then he lay down in the cold, wet mud and slept under the wing of his spat. The next morning, another Signal Corps photographer, Lieutenant Harry Drucker, had heard the story, gotten up before dawn, and drove to the crash site, praying that the Arizona balloon buster was still there. He managed to convince Luke to pose in front of his aircraft, still waiting for a ride home. Luke reluctantly agreed. The blank, numb expression of the day before has been replaced by one of simmering anger. It's the face of a man that wants revenge, and his eyes have the look of a man who doesn't much care if he gets killed obtaining it. Luke had expected to get chewed out by Grant when he returned on the 27th, and Grant did not disappoint him. What Luke did not expect was to walk into the mess hall of the first pursuit group to the combined cheers from every pilot on the field. It had been Rickenbacker's idea, and he'd insisted on it. They called for a speech, but now the biggest loudmouth in the first pursuit suddenly didn't know what to say. Well, I, uh... I just want to thank you guys for giving me this dinner. And I want to tell you one thing. Those goddamn Germans will never take me alive. And then Frank Luke, America's ace of aces, sat down, looked around, and wondered how different things would feel if Joe Werner had been there to see it too. Everyone could see that Frank was utterly spent. Hartney offered him a week-long pass to Orly just south of Paris, and when he turned it down, Hartney ordered him to go. Despite the fact that he was now a sensation all across France, he returned from leave two days early on the 25th. There was nothing to do, he said. He was over the front on the 26th with a new wingman, Lieutenant Ivan Roberts, whom he promptly abandoned. He got another D7 before returning to the squadron's new base at Rembercourt. Ivan Roberts had not returned. He would never return. Like so many of the other men lost in World War I, Roberts simply disappeared into the mud. His body was never found. There were balloons up and down the lines on the 27th, but Luke had not been assigned to either of the two patrols flown that day, and by sunset, Luke simply couldn't stand it anymore. Without orders and without permission, he simply got in his plane and flew off to a forward airfield near Verdun, landed, and went to sleep. 
America's top scoring ace was now away without official leave. It was a career-ending court-martial offense. Now, the men up at the Verdun airfield would later say that Luke didn't seem to care. In fact, he seemed relieved, almost cheerful. On the 28th, he flamed another Draken and then spotted another two-seater, and he shot that down too. But he did not fly back to the base at Rebercourt. He went back to Verdun. On the morning of September 29th, Archie Grant walked into Hartney's office and informed him that he was going to bring pork martial charges against Luke and demanded to know if he was going to back him up regarding the charges. If not, he would resign on the spot. So what was Hartney to do? It wasn't the slightest question that Luke had been repeatedly insubordinate and now he'd gone AWOL. If he didn't back Grant, then military discipline would simply fall apart. And if he did back him, America would lose its best pilot, and it would happen in a very, very ugly fashion. But perhaps there might still be a way. The problem was that Luke simply had no respect for Grant whatsoever. But Rickenbacker, on the other hand, Rickenbacker was an ace. Rickenbacker was a competitor. Rickenbacker was his friend. If Hartney could buy a few more hours, there might be time to move Luke from the 27th to Rickenbacker Squadron, the 94th. Later that day, Luke had called Hartney directly, telling me he could see a string of balloons all across the front. And to buy time, Hartney cleared Luke for a solo mission. It was late in the afternoon of September 29th, 1918. Back at the forward airfield at Verdun, Frank Luke let the engine idle and reached down for a small steel cylinder with a long streamer attached. He opened his notebook, scribbled down some words, stuffed them into the cylinder, and screwed on the top. He was airborne just a minute or two before 6 p.m. He turned sharply to the west, away from the front, headed for the 7th American Balloon Company, stationed at the tiny village of Avacor, where he dropped the message canister with its fluttering streamer. The message read, Watch for Burning Balloon, signed Lieutenant Luke. Now, Luke knew that he was going to have to have another spectacular mission to assuage the fury back at Rembercourt. To the east, he could see four Draken in a line parallel to the front. Luke started his run on the southernmost Draken. He made a pass at it, but it failed to explode. It was practically on the ground by the time he got there, so he decided to continue down the line. He arrived in time to flame the second one. The explosion was clearly visible to the men back at the American Balloon Company back at Avacourt. It also happened to alert every other German balloon unit, which began winching their Draken down just as fast as they could. By the time he could get to them, the last two of them were already on the ground. Luke didn't waste time on them. He needed trophies, big explosions visible for miles, and he needed to collect as many as he could if he were to appease those waiting to arrest him when he returned to base. Now suddenly, there was another terrific fireball ahead and to his left. Some other Allied plane had flamed another German balloon, so he decided to head in that direction to see if there was anything still aloft. And sure enough, there was. Another drop, not far from the one he'd seen explode just a few moments before. Ahead of him was a steep, curved ridge called the Côte de Saint-Germain. Now, if he headed directly at them, they'd see him coming, but if he offset a little bit to the right and flew right down on the deck, he'd be out of their sight behind the ridge. The Germans, of course, had watched Luke flame one of the four balloons they'd had in a string and drive the other three down. There had to be another plane out there. They couldn't see Frank Luke's spad, but they could hear it, and they were ready for it. 
the instant that Luke popped up from behind the Côte de Saint-Germain, the entire sky lit up. Anti-aircraft cannons nicknamed Flaming Onions because of their glowing white phosphor trails, strings of orange tracers from the multiple machine gun positions, and the popping horn sound from individual rifles on the ground. He put a long burst into the Draken, and as he pulled up sharply, he could see that he damaged it, but Luke needed an explosion. A second kill visible to the Americans of the 7th Balloon Company, where he dropped the canister at Avacor, 18 miles to the south. He climbed almost vertically, then kicked the rudder hard, driving straight down at the German balloon, firing away. It blossomed into an orange fireball. Now all he had to do was get out. Luke was not going back to Rembercourt, that much was certain. He would land at a French airfield, assuming he could find one. He decided to follow a road curving around to the east. The enemy ground fire stopped as Luke disappeared behind the ridge that he used to mask his approach. In the fading light, it had seemed like every gun in the German army had been firing as he made his two passes, but they had missed him. He'd done it again. Up ahead was a small village. The map and compass headings made sense now it was Mervo, it had to be. On the ground, he saw a number of men in gray uniforms emerging from a field tent to see what the fuss was all about. Luke strafed them as he came out of his turn, killing six of them. Suddenly, there was a jaw-rattling boom, as if someone had fired a rifle just behind his right ear. Just south of Merveaux, an anti-aircraft battery was just 300 yards away. That's point-blank range. Luke turned and dove to the left. Two more batteries opened fire just ahead on the base of the Côte de Saint-Germain. The shallow valley was a death trap. Big guns on both sides and very, very close. Luke turned and flew away from them both, running back along the base of the Saint-Germain, about a half mile north of his inbound trap. There's a small cove, little bite, taken out of the southern wall of the Côte de Saint-Germain, mounted halfway up the west side, was a single German machine gun placement. Now, when Luke first appeared a few moments earlier, he'd been on the far side of the valley, about half a mile away and moving fast. The machine gunners held their fire so as not to reveal their position, but now, as Luke reversed course, he was flying along their side of the valley. The lip of the cove still blocked their view, but they could hear him coming, and they were ready. Frank Luke looked over his shoulder. The big guns back at Merveau had missed him too. Now all he had to do... A single 30 caliber bullet hit Frank Luke just in front of his right shoulder, about two inches below the collarbone. It passed between his heart and his spinal cord and punctured both lungs before blowing a two-inch exit wound away in his back that took away the bottom of his left shoulder blade. Luke knew he was badly hit, so he put his spad down in the field directly in front of him. Halfway between his landing site and the machine gun that had brought him down were the big guns of the Prussian 7th Reserve Artillery, less than a quarter mile away. German soldiers started running towards the spad. Luke tried to swing out of the left side of the cockpit the way he always did, but his right arm couldn't take the weight, so he forced himself up. He sat on the right side of the cockpit rail and fell backward into the mud. Now behind him, a small creek ran across the bottom of the shallow valley, spotted here and there with clumps of small trees and dense underbrush. Luke stood up, he unholstered his 45, he racked around into the chamber, and he started to stagger towards the nearest clump of trees. With every breath he took, his chest felt tighter and tighter. As his lungs filled with blood, he would get less and less oxygen, which would make him breathe faster and faster. Bullets were kicking up dirt all around him. He had to get behind some concealment. 
He dragged himself into the bushes by the creek and then he sat back and he collapsed. He was lying on his back in the cold mud looking up at the sky. His vision was starting to gray out. He gasped for air again, but his lungs wouldn't work anymore. He could hear the sound of enemy soldiers calling to each other. They were close now, very close. And then somehow, Frank Luke Jr. managed to roll over onto his stomach. He pressed his left hand deep into the mud and managed to get a leg up underneath him. He could hear the Germans calling to each other, certain that he was dead. He stood up, fighting for balance. His brain was not getting enough oxygen for him to be able to see, but he could still hear German voices, and his heart was as strong as it had ever been. He took another gasp of air. There was foam on his lips. He raised his right arm, and he pointed his 45 in the direction of the wrestling sound, and he fired around. It boomed through the valley, crisp and clear to the French villagers of German-occupied Mervaux. Now, they couldn't see Luke, but perhaps some of them might have seen the flash as a second shot rang out and then a third crack that echoed briefly through the wooded valley. None of the German troops had been hit. They advanced with their rifles at the ready, ahead, through the bushes. They saw an American pilot lying on his back, his eyes wide open, staring at the sky as the first stars started to appear. In his right hand, he was still holding a 45, and a thin wisp of smoke was curling out of the barrel. Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr. of Phoenix, Arizona, would be the first American pilot to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. The last paragraph of the citation reads, forced to make a landing and surrounded on all sides by the enemy who called upon him to surrender, he drew his automatic pistol and defended himself gallantly until he fell dead from a wound in the chest. And that's exactly what had happened. This last stand was not gonna fall apart under the merciless glare of modern research. This stand actually really happened. Marie Rapson would later remarry, but for the rest of her life, she'd keep a scrapbook of articles about Frank, articles that appeared less and less often with each passing year. In late October of 1918, Luke's parents received a handwritten letter which began, my dear friends, it was a long and deeply personal letter. It spoke elegantly and clearly, referring to their son as the premier man of the air service who had brought honor and distinction to his squadron, his country, and to them. It closed with the following. Accept the sympathy, honor, and respect of his brother officers, the enlisted men of this squadron, and the entire air service. Most sincerely, Alfred A. Grant. His friend Eddie Rickenbacker would later say he was the most daring aviator and the greatest fighter pilot of the entire war. He went on a rampage and shot down 14 enemy aircraft, including 10 balloons, in eight days. No other ace, even the dreaded Red Baron, had ever come close to that. Major Harold Hartney, who aside from Joe Werner knew him best, would later write simply, man, how that kid could fly. But of all the things written and said about Frank Luke, my favorite was from a man who barely knew him, Charles de Olive of the 93rd Aero Squadron. He was quite a boy, he said. I saw that devil one day get on a motorcycle without the sidecar and go down one of those straight roads like a bat out of hell. He turned loose of the handlebars and he took two 45s and he emptied them into those great elm trees that grow along those roads. Bam, bam, bam and he hit every single tree. That's pretty good, 